Hi, and welcome to another episode of The Abnormal Psychologist. I'm your host, Dr. Colby Taylor, and I'm excited because today's episode is going to talk about a disorder that I'm really, really passionate about. Uh, we're going to discuss autism, or more formally, autism spectrum disorder. So when I was prepping for this episode, I started thinking about how I became drawn to autism. And I'm still not really sure. Ten years ago, I'm not sure that I would have taken a special interest in autism. I mean, uh, I have some family experience with the disorder. Uh, my uncle Jim has autism. And we'll talk about the history of the disorder later in the episode. But he was diagnosed at a time where, sadly, there weren't many treatment options. So in early adulthood, he went to go live at an assisted living facility. And he's been living there ever since. And it's tragic, I guess, that we didn't really have a better understanding of the disorder in the 1960s. But also, he seems very happy with his current living arrangements. Unfortunately, though, over the weekend, we received some news that he's tested positive for COVID-19. He's now in isolation, and he's had to move rooms temporarily. So I'm worried not only about his health. Uh, thankfully, right now, he's asymptomatic. But I'm also worried that, um, you know, he might not be coping so well with the change in rooms. And we'll discuss rigidity and routine later in the episode as it relates to autism. All right, back to my introspection on my passion for autism. I guess the family experience helped, but it wasn't really until graduate school uh, when I completed practica placements at both a local children's hospital and at the University of Tennessee Health Sciences Center at the Bowling Center for De Developmental Disabilities um, that I became really drawn to the disorder. Working with kids and their families, I think this is how I became passionate about autism. But I also consciously uh, didn't want to sort of pin myself into a corner as an autism-specific psychologist. I have colleagues that did internships and postdocs at super prestigious autism centers. They know way more about autism than I do. So I still wanted to be a generalist, sort of. Uh, I think I'm also drawn to autism in that it's a condition that I don't think we have a very good understanding of. Not that I think we have a really great grasp on any of the diagnoses I've talked about on this podcast. It wouldn't surprise me if 25 or 50 years down the road, someone stumbles on this podcast and laughs at how far off base I was. Uh, our knowledge of autism is constantly evolving. Remember from our schizophrenia episode that autism was originally considered a subset of schizophrenia. The term autism was coined by Eugene Bleuler, and autism comes from the Greek for autos, which means alone. So sort of the same etymological root for like autonomy and automatic. Remember, we talked about Bleuler as sort of coining the term schizophrenia, too, back in 1910. So this was only about 100 years ago. And this isn't to say that autism didn't start just existing, spring out of nowhere 100 years ago. You'll hear some folks argue that it's sort of a novel condition that has only started appearing recently with changes in diet and industrialization. Uh, but I think that's a stretch. I mean, we had cases of enfant sauvage in French, like the wild boy of Aveyron. Uh, in the 18th and 19th centuries, who appeared to be feral children. They had no language and weren't appropriately responsive to other people socially. Instead of cases of autism not existing until the last 100 years or so, we probably just mislabeled these cases. Lower-functioning individuals were labeled as simpletons, imbeciles, or feeble-minded, again, less sensitive to stigmatizing language back in the day, and higher-functioning individuals were labeled as loners or eccentrics. Leo Kanner an Austrian-born medical doctor. He started as a cardiologist and then later became a psychiatrist, and then he moved to the United States, really helped shape our modern conceptualization of autism. 
Kanner published a study called Autistic Disturbances of Effective Contact in 1943 in a journal, and I chuckled at the name of this journal, called The Nervous Child. His study was based on observations of 11 children, eight boys and three girls. And this is about the sex difference that we'll see in the prevalence of the disorder today, by the way. We'll discuss this later in the episode. Anyways, Kanner called the condition early infantile autism. So with this term, early infantile autism, we see the disorder characterized as being developmental in nature. You have the disorder early in life. So Kanner published a study back in 1943, and at the exact same time, half the world over, Hans Asperger, another Austrian by birth, was working with kids. And he noticed the same condition, but he called it childhood autistic psychopathy, or psychopathy, in 1944. Asperger's work wasn't really well known, until it was translated into English in 1981, by the way. Anyways, Asperger is an interesting figure. He may have been a Nazi, or at least a Nazi sympathizer, and he may also have had a high-functioning autism himself. Anyways, based off of his work that was posthumously translated into English in 1981, we started to have a condition called Asperger syndrome to describe people with high-functioning autism. And Asperger syndrome became a diagnosable condition in the DSM-IV in 1994. There's no such thing as Asperger's anymore. It was eliminated in the DSM-V in 2013 and put under the umbrella of autism spectrum disorder. So the entire lifespan of Asperger syndrome was less than 20 years. Anyways, so all this to say it's an evolving disorder. The 2013 publication of the DSM-V was a game changer. Before this, we had separate diagnoses for autistic disorder, Asperger's disorder, Rett's disorder, which was a very rare genetic condition in females. Rett's disorder, by the way, is named after Andreas Rett, who is yet another Austrian physician. We also had childhood disintegrative disorder. I always have trouble saying that one. Childhood disintegrative disorder, which is also called Heller syndrome, which is named after Theodore Heller, who was from, you guessed it, Austria. Childhood disintegrative disorder involves children who were typically developing, meeting developmental milestones, and then losing their skills. We consider this regressive autism now, where you lose skills that you once had. Regressive autism isn't as common as some people think, by the way. A lot of pediatricians and parents mistakenly believe that one of the main characteristics of autism is that you lose skills in early childhood that you once had. Maybe you learned to talk at year one and then lost that ability. It's actually a minority of cases with autism that exhibits true regressions. It's much more common that kids plateau in their skills. They have abrupt stops in social communication development rather than truly losing skills. Anyways, back to the pre-DSM-5 diagnoses. We also had pervasive developmental disorder not otherwise specified, which in shorthand we called PDD-NOS. This was sort of a catch-all category of kids that didn't technically meet diagnostic criteria for autis autistic disorder or the other diagnoses I talked about, but something didn't seem quite right. And sadly, clinically, sometimes the acronym FLK is used. FLK stands for funny-looking kid. Something isn't quite typical, but the child isn't meeting diagnostic criteria. Anyways, PDD and OS was helpful in some ways in that we knew there were some autismish symptoms in, at play. But it could also be unhelpful in that a lot of these kids couldn't get access to services they needed because they technically didn't have autism. And for a clinician, if you get a report that says PDD and OS, you really didn't know what it looks like, right? There's so much heterogeneity there. Anyways, so with the publication of the DSM-5, 
we collapsed all of these disorders into an umbrella diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. And this was super controversial, especially among people with Asperger's. Sadly, I've seen this sort of elitist argument a few times that people with Asperger's didn't really want to be grouped with others with autism, that being an Aspie connoted being high functioning. So they didn't want to be grouped there. Autism might have been traditionally thought of as lower functioning, whereas Asperger's was traditionally thought of as higher functioning. And now that distinction is gone. I'm not really sure how I feel. There's so much heterogeneity within the autism spectrum. I mean, yes, it exists on a spe spectrum, right? And we'll find commonalities with this diagnosis across the spectrum. But sometimes you'll have people with autism and you'll say, there's no way these people have the same disorder. It wouldn't surprise me if in a few decades with advances in genetics and such, that we break the umbrella of autism spectrum disorder down, ASD, into more discrete categories again. Anyways, so I mentioned that ASD exists on a spectrum. We have geniuses with autism. It seems like these are the people popularized on TV. Sheldon Cooper from The Big Bang Theory, Sam Gardner from Atypical, or Sean Murphy from The Good Doctor. Also with Sean Murphy, the same actor, Freddie Highmore, who is British, by the way, played Norman Bates in The Bates Motel. So obviously there were some misgivings with the casting choice when the show first aired, you know, connoting Norman Bates with autism in a way. All right. So these folks, even though they're fictional, are super smart. But a third to half of individuals with ASD also have intellectual disability. And we did an episode on intellectual disability earlier that you can go back and listen to if you want. Also, about a quarter of individuals with autism are nonverbal. So again, so much heterogeneity. But we do have two common features, two defining features of autism. And we call these features criteria A and criteria B based on how they're listed in the DSM-5. Criteria A involves difficulties in social communication and social interaction. And criteria B involves restrictive, repetitive patterns of behaviors, interests, or activities. So criteria A involves difficulties in social communication and interaction. With this, you might see deficits in social reciprocity. So in conversation, we have this serve and return pattern. You might mention your interest and then your conversation partner, you might ask them about their interests. If someone asks you how your day is going, you usually tell them and then you ask how their day is going, right? But with some individuals on the spectrum, they don't exhibit the return part of the conversation or they could monopolize the conversation around their interests. You also might see reduced sharing of interests or deficits in gestures. With conversation, we usually coordinate our nonverbals with what we're saying, right? We might point or shrug or otherwise gesticulate. But this integration of nonverbals with communication can be, or conversation can be lacking in individuals on the spectrum. And this can be highly culturally specific, by the way. And cultures that use a lot of gesticulation, you might actually see really rich nonverbals among people on the spectrum. Uh, I know in Hawaii, where many youth do hula, which involves hand movements, there are many more nonverbals than back in Tennessee. There could also be really poor eye contact, but again, super culturally driven. In many cultures, direct eye contact can be seen as disrespectful. And it turns out that most people aren't good at eye contact. I think there's research that we're getting worse with eye contact generationally, by the way. I've seen interventions targeted at increasing eye contact that have failed spectacularly. Uh, you might try to reinforce eye contact and instead get the locked-in death stare. Just orienting to the converser's face every now and then is probably the goal of intervention. That should be the goal. All right, continuing with criteria A, the difficulties in social communication and interaction. 
there may be a lack of facial expression. Remember, we talked about flat affect a few episodes ago. Normally, kids have super expressive facial expressions. If they're surprised, disgusted, or super happy, you can tell it by their faces. But this isn't necessarily the case for individuals on the spectrum. You might also have difficulty in developing or understanding relationships. In one of the autism assessments that I give, we conduct an interview. And we might ask why someone might want to get married. And sometimes individuals on the spectrum struggle with questions like this. There might also be difficulty in making friends. And in children, we might see a lack of imaginative play. Okay, so that's criteria A. Criteria A, again, is difficulties in social communication and social interaction. And if you only have criteria A, you might qualify for a diagnosis of social pragmatic communication disorder, which is a new disorder in the DSM-5. For ASD, though, you need a criteria B, too. And criteria B involves restrictive, repetitive patterns of behaviors, interests, or activities. So this might involve motor stereotypy, like hand flapping, rocking back and forth, or certain finger movements. And often these motor stereotypies are comforting. They're self-soothing. If you just present with this, by the way, and no other symptoms, there's a diagnosis called stereotypic movement disorder. Okay, so back to criteria B. This might also involve lining up toys. So you might line up all of your toy cars as a child, and you might get really upset if someone messes them up. You might also have echolalia. Echolalia is repeating certain words or sounds. So if I asked you how your day was, and instead of answering, you repeated, your day was, your day was, that's echolalia. With kids, a lot of times they'll repeat what their teacher says or parents say, like no running in the hall, but it's not in an appropriate time. The child might be in their bedroom when they're repeating this, or they might repeat lines from movies or jingles from commercials or something. There might also be insistence on sameness. There could be rigidity related to routine that can almost uh, look OCD-ish in some ways. So you might need to wear the same clothes or have the same morning routine, or you might insist on driving the same way to work or school every morning. And if there's a detour or something, you could become very distressed. You might also have restricted interest. Uh, sometimes we call this little professor syndrome. You might be very interested in a topic like the weather or Pixar films or Thomas the Tank Engine. It almost looks like an obsession. And sometimes this can monopolize conversations. Uh, individuals might only want to talk about that particular topic. Um, I sort of had a restricted interest when I was a child. I had a restricted interest in weather. And I would do little weather reports and stuff. And I also had one in the American Civil War. I used to dress up as a different Civil War figure for Halloween from like age six to age nine. Uh, one Halloween, I was Admiral David Farragut, who's the hero of the Battle of Mobile Bay. And I would walk around saying, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead, which was a Farragut quote. Uh, my parents were like super embarrassed. They told me just to tell people that I was a police officer. Anyways, a few of my colleagues think I might be on the spectrum. Right. With criteria B, there might also be sensory seeking behaviors, like seeking out certain textures or light or sound, or there could be sensory aversions. So maybe not liking certain textures of food, maybe being a picky eater or not liking loud noises, covering your ears when you hear a vacuum cleaner or something. I used to be scared of loud toilets as a child. I would cover my ears in a public restroom and I would ask my parents if it was a loud flusher. Um, or you might not like tags on your clothes. Lots of different sensory aversions and sensory seeking behaviors that we see. All right, this is turning into a long episode. Uh, I'm not really going to be able to get into the assessment or the treating of autism. 
the prevalence of autism is about one in 68 kids, though this is debatable. You'll see quite a range in like prevalence statistics. Some will say one in 120 and some will say one in one or one in 68. So you'll see a, a huge range and the numbers could be going up. Uh, lots of this could be due to better identification of the disorder, but it could also be due to certain cultural factors or diet or stress or that people are having babies at older ages. Uh, autism is about 4.5 times more common in males than females, and the average age of diagnosis is four years, 10 months. And we're hoping to get this age of diagnosis down, average age of diagnosis down, as it can be reliably diagnosed by age two. And as we know, early intervention is super, super important. So some risk factors for autism are genetics, and we have heritability estimates that range from 40 to 90%, uh, advanced parental age, and low birth weight. Notice I didn't say vaccines. Vaccines are not a risk factor. Repeat, vaccines are not a risk factor. This comes from Andrew Wakefield's fraudulent study back in 1989. I think a lot of people start to see developmental differences right around one year of age, which coincidentally is also the age that most people get their MMR vaccine. All right, it's also not due to lack of parental warmth. Sadly, in the mid 20th century, some experts like Bruno Bettelheim said it was a lack of maternal warmth that caused autism. This was called the refrigerator mother hypothesis, that mothers caused autism through being cold, uncaring, and unresponsive. And this is patently false and has done a ton of damage. I really wish I could have gotten more into the treatment of ASD in this episode, but one of the most empirically supported, one of the most research-supported treatments is Applied Behavior Analysis, or ABA. It uses operant conditioning to teach skills and to eliminate problem behaviors. So very BF Skinner. Uh, I could do an ABA episode uh, if there's a request, an entire episode on ABA if you want. Uh, also, social skills groups are great. I used to lead some social skills groups with adolescent boys who were a lot of fun. Anyways, unfortunately, I'm out of time for this episode. Uh, as I said, I'd be super happy to do other episodes on autism, on autism treatment and autism assessment, uh, if there's any interest. Um, I teach a semester's long undergrad course on autism, so I could easily do a dozen episodes, or I could even do a spinoff podcast if there's enough interest. Just send me a request or mailbag questions, or anything, but not really anything. Don't send me spam to ctaylo41 at cv.edu. So that's it for this episode. Until the next episode, take care and stay well.